Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fairview Family Ministry Podcast. Today, I have the privilege of having soon-to-be Dr. Elijah Hasi, who is leaving with his family to go to Israel for a year as he continues his studies and finishes up his PhD work in archaeology. Today, we're going to be talking about Easter, and so we're going to cover a variety of topics. It was a fascinating conversation. Uh, then we talk about Jesus' birth year, a tomb location, objections, and answers about the resurrection. We even include uh, really some really cool tidbits about Genesis 3 and archaeological evidence, uh, particularly with the bruising of a heel. And we're going to be finishing off with uh, his understanding of nature and miracles. And uh, yeah, it was just a really fascinating, fascinating conversation. And I hope that you enjoy it. Before we get to it, though, Please, please, please leave a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. It not only helps us as a podcast, but we want and believe that this resource is not only meant for people of Fairview, but also for those that may not be a part of our church family so that they can enjoy our resources as well that we are trying to produce. Well, I won't uh, delay it any longer. Again, I love this conversation I had with Elijah Hasi. So yeah, here we go. All right, everybody, we are going to get started. We have Elijah Hasi. Is that right, Hasi? Yes, sir. Awesome. In the house, he is a soon-to-be doctorate. Hopefully. Hopefully in archaeology. And uh, if you would, Elijah, go ahead and introduce yourself, your family, and a little bit about your life, what you're about to go do, and then we will jump into today's episode. All right. Well, like Brother, Brother Spolino said, uh, my name is Elijah Hasi. I am currently a student at Lipscomb University working on a Ph.D. in archaeology. I have a wife, Megan, and three kids, Jackson, Naomi, and Pearl. Uh, and we are soon to move to Israel, uh, where I've been awarded a study fellowship at Ariel University. And uh, I'm going to go out there and hopefully become more familiar with the land than I already am and get to be involved in more projects and hopefully build that resume up so that I don't just have paper of the <laughs> degree kind, but also of the monetary kind. Nice. So. How many uh, digs or projects have you worked on so Okay. Far? Uh, yeah, I've been on uh, three different projects, each for uh, multiple seasons, and uh, one at, um, at Tel Gezer, which was my first. Uh, that's one of Solomon's three fortified cities, Gezer, Hatzor, and Megiddo. And uh, then we've also, uh, or the current excavation that I'll be working on is Tel Berna, or Tel Berna. Um, they believe that it is uh, biblical Libna, so it's found in the Joshua Conquest account and also mentioned as Josiah's wife's hometown. Um, and then uh, I'm also involved at an ex- excavation site in Kazakhstan, on the southern border of Kazakhstan, near about 100 miles from the Chinese border. Uh, called uh, Ili Balik, uh, which is a Silk Road Christian community uh, graveyard. So, Very cool. Before we jump in, uh, what is the coolest thing you think you found or discovered? I remember you came for VBS and did a really cool uh, missions moment for our uh, kiddos. What's like one of the coolest things you think you found that just was really impactful? Yeah, um, so... A few things. So I found a, a metal scale at uh, Gezer that was pretty neat. They believe that it was like an armor scale, so possibly Assyrian from uh, Sennacherib's invasion. 
that was kind of neat. Um, but then, really, anytime you're excavating a human, uh, and I've excavated numerous uh, people graves at this point, and uh, anytime you're you're excavating a human, just to be able to kind of think through this person was born and had parents and had likes and dislikes and and everything. And uh, you're holding all that remains of, of their entire experience on this earth. Uh, that's pretty humbling, uh, but it's also really, really cool. So, Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, let's jump into our conversation uh, today. We're going to be talking about Easter, um, and we're going to be talking about uh, really just some objections to uh, that you may hear. But I wanted to, um, you know, about Easter, about the resurrection. But before we jump to that, I want to just kind of hear maybe some archaeological understandings of Easter, you know, where it happened or anything else you want to give us as far as uh, that's concerned before we jump into some of the objections. Okay, sure. Uh, So Easter, uh, obviously we are entering into Holy Week right now, and that's a big question this time of year. And, uh, you know, first of all, uh, I think it's pretty cool to say uh, if we're figuring— which, which is typically what we do, that Jesus was born in either 4 B.C. or 1 B.C., depending on the date of Herod, mm-hmm. uh, which, hint, hint, it's 4, uh, 4 <laughs> B.C. That's, uh, and, so that's and, where you land, Yes, 4 well, B.C. And that's where all people who are right land. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's gotcha. established in a couple of different ways. Sure. First of all, it's, uh, that's the ascension date that his sons took power, uh, so they have inscriptions that show that. And then the other uh, reason that we know is because Josephus mentions on, the, uh, on his um, death, the, the day of his death, there was an eclipse. And so eclipses are trackable, and we can track it back to 4 B.C. Uh, was when that happened there. Um, so uh, if we take that date, 4 B.C., then we go uh, figure it all out. Jesus, 30, 30 years old when he begins his ministry, 33 years old when he's crucified, uh, then we're looking at 29 uh, A.D. is about when this happens. So I think it's pretty neat just to start off with to say that the generation that's alive today, many of us, uh, those who persist and show the Lord Terry, will be alive for the 2000th anniversary of Christ's crucifixion. And just a few years ago, of course, we celebrated uh, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So those mm-hmm. are two big anniversaries that this um current age of believers gets to live through, and that's a neat thing. But uh, So moving on into Holy Week, so we know that uh, Jesus was crucified both from the text. Uh, this has also been established through, um, uh, through the fact that we know that Romans did in fact crucify people. We've even found ankle bones with nails driven through the ankle bone uh, where the Rome, they were crucified by Roman crucifixion. Uh, for years and years, people said that these characters in the gospel accounts did not exist. And then we find at Caesarea Maritima the, what's called the Pilate Stone, uh, hint Pontius Pilate, and mm-hmm. it says uh, Pontius uh, Pilatus, uh, and, and it names his, his office and everything about him. So we know that uh, Pilate is a real guy. And uh, so we've got that tie-in. Um, of course, we've got the tie-in of the land. Uh, as well, and uh, you know, you know, when we talk, start talking about like the garden tomb and these sorts of things, uh, of course, people have different opinions about that. Uh, the garden tomb, the one that they will take you to, it is not the tomb of Jesus. Definitively, it's a very nice prayer garden, a <laughs> uh, very nice place to go and meditate on the scripture. 
Um, and it, it fits the picture that we have in our mind, but that's actually an Iron Age tomb, and we know that because of the structure of the tomb. It's got these really pronounced arcosolium, the kind of arches uh, above the place where they would lay the bodies, uh, and uh, it's just not a first century tomb. And so um, from that perspective, you've got um, uh, basically uh, the scripture says that, that Jesus is buried in a new tomb, first of all, so it can't be that they're reusing this tomb. And uh, even beyond that, you have Byzantine period, it's, it's reused again. So if the Byzantine church was renowned for picking sacred sp spaces and sure. they would honor these spaces, you know, and so for them to uh, take a place that should be the most venerable site in all of Christendom and then somebody throws, you know, Byzantine Bob, their cousin, in the grave, they would never desecrate it that way were it actually Christ's um, uh, burial place. And so this tradition comes much later in the 19th century, uh, several guys coming into the Holy Land. Uh, I believe it was Conrad was looking at a topographical map of the uh, Temple Mount and, and all of Old Jerusalem and thought that the, the Golgotha, the place of the skull, looked like the head of a body that was laid out across the Temple Mount. And so, you know, finding this tomb there, obviously it was decreed by the heavens, and sure. Protestants rejoiced all over uh, <laughs> for a century since. But um, the actual place, as, as far as we can tell, uh, would be the Holy Sepulchre, which is the traditional spot. Uh, it's not full, you know, you're not 100%, can't be 100% about a lot of these things. Uh, but we do know that uh, it is in the right place. Of course, it's inside the city. The scripture says that it is outside the city, but the, the city wall moved sure. since then. So uh, the city wall has moved to encompass the sepulcher, but it was not in the time of Christ. Um, and uh, the really convincing parts of it are, first of all, there are inscriptions there uh, from even to the second century, showing where Christian pilgrims are coming there, wow. and they are venerating this spot as the, the birthplace of Jesus Christ. And uh, then secondly, several years ago, the Catholic Church decided to open up the flooring above uh, where the grave was. So the, the first Holy Sepulchre, the, the structure that was built on that site, was destroyed in the 10th century um, by a man named uh, Mad, Mad Hakim. He had come in, raid the Holy Land. He was Muslim. And uh, in order to squash Christianity, he had the uh, Holy Sepulchre raised and had the ground scraped, hoping to destroy any evidence mm. of the tomb of Christ. And, uh, you know, so then this new one was built later, uh, but they pulled up the floor just a few years ago. I think it was 2014, I want to say. And when they did, you can still see a trace outline of where the, the room structure for the tomb was. And it has these really distinct uh, finger-looking uh, places that come across it uh, called loculi. That's the archaeological term. And it's basically like a chamber that you would scoot the body into, and then you would have other places with ossuaries. And once you had laid there and your body had kind of decomposed, it would get down to bones. And then they would gather your bones, and they would put them in these ossuaries, these boxes. Uh, and uh, you might be in there, and your relatives might be in there. And so this is the ossuary practice is what they're talking about even into the Old Testament, probably when they're saying they were gathered to their elders. They would mm. gather the bones and then store them uh, in with the elders' bones. So, wow. Yeah, that's cool stuff. Yeah, that, that's super neat. I think it's uh, interesting, and just kind of leading into our further discussion, that 
historically we know that you know the Romans practiced crucifixion. We can have a good idea of where Christ's tomb you know would have been, and there's all these kind of historical elements to say you know Jesus was a real person. Mm-hmm. He lived. He died. Um, as other texts show outside of Scripture, That's right. Christians believed. So um, I'm thinking of Josephus. Let and me, he even calls him the Messiah. Josephus yeah, he, does. Yeah, let me get it. I have the, I have the text here. Let me, let me see if I can find it for us. He says this. This is uh, Flavius Josephus. It says, At this time there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, accordingly whom the prophets have reported wonders and the tribe of the Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. And so you have these historians from outside the Christian church. From what I know, Josephus was not a believer. He was not a Christ follower. He was Jewish. Yeah, he was Jewish. And so um, you have these people talking about how this was a real person who you know, inevitably claimed real things and his body went missing. Um, And so I've been able to read uh, scholars throughout the past, you know, uh, just kind of modern scholarship uh, that want to debunk uh, the resurrection, want to debunk um, Christianity. But one thing that they really can't do is say that Jesus was a myth or that Jesus was not a historical person. I don't know of many uh, historians who would be bold enough to make that claim. I think even the most agnostic or atheistic historians that I know that write on Scripture, write on the Bible, um, for example, like Bart Ehrman, right? Even he would say, no, this was a real person. Now, he may interpret, you know, the empty tomb differently, but no one can really debunk the fact that Jesus was a real person, that um, he was, seemed to be a spectacular type of visionary person in the day, um, because he is, um, he did develop a following and those sorts of things. He did die, um, and I think we have, uh, you know, an understanding died by crucifixion and that he was put it in a tomb and that tomb was empty three days later. So the question becomes, if the tomb is empty, what do we make of that? Like, what are the options? What are the objections to Christianity? Um, and what are some answers as Christ followers that we can give when we're approached to say, well, you know, yeah, he may have been a historical person. He may have died on a cross. He may have been put in a tomb and his body went missing. Well, you know, the disciples could have taken the body or this part, you know, so what are some of the objections and what are some of the uh, answers that we can give as Christians in response to uh, those, those maybe uh, objections? Well, I think some of the strongest apologetics for it are uh, in the text itself, actually. So in the text, you have a few different things that you can look at to establish these, the credibility of the account. First of all, uh, the fact that Jesus, um, the missing body was discovered by women. Uh, no one in the first century, and this is not to disparage women in any role, uh, but no one in the first century culture, uh, if they wanted to make a story credible, would pass that story through women. Uh, now, of course, you know, Peter uh, runs and, and checks the tomb and all this kind of stuff. 
But even still, just that tidbit of information is a pretty good indicator that uh, they're not telling a story. Uh, if you want to create a, a good, believable story, they're going to have a whole lot of people that are all going to discover that Jesus is missing all at once, sure. you know. Uh, and, and in truth, you know, if they're writing this to an audience, we know that the text is from the period that it purports to be. If they're writing it to an audience that was present for all that occurred, you know, they're going to see some of these things. And we would have some kind of record, as much writing as we have from the first century, of someone saying, you know, they're saying all this stuff, but I was there the whole time and it didn't happen, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, But we don't have anything like that. Uh, but what we do have is over and over again, people coming to true belief, and, uh, and, and that's really a, convict, a convincing part of it to me. Another reason that you might want to say, you know, that this would not be the case, that this would, you know, the, the story, uh, it can be affirmed true, is the fact that there were guards placed outside of the tomb. And so uh, the fact that there's guards, uh, especially Roman guards, w- would mean that these people are responsible uh, for whatever is inside. And if that is desecrated in any way or the body were stolen, then this guard would be responsible with his life. And we see the same thing in Acts when uh, Paul is imprisoned and and the earthquake happens. And they say, no, we didn't go. You know, we're we're still here. Well, this jailer is happy because if he had let his prisoners escape, then he would be responsible with his life, Mm -hmm. life for a life. Um, So the fact that there is a a guard that's placed at Jesus' tomb uh, tells us that there is... um, you know, that it's a trustworthy story. Yeah, and I think that's an important key, just because this was not a small circumstance that was happening. I mean, it seems to indicate from the text and from even historians talking about his life that this was a big deal, um, and that, you know, it probably, and I don't know this, you can correct me, it's probably not a common practice to put guards on a tomb right when somebody dies right away. Is that... Well, and that's, that's exactly correct. And I think some of the statements that Jesus alludes to about his resurrection may have uh, kind of told them, you know, hey, we need to do something about this. Or it could be that they didn't want anyone desecrating the tomb to, to say, you know, we're going to, you know, mess with the body in any other way, you know. To yeah, and I guess, I guess I think of about like this. Like if I was, you know, a disciple and I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, or I don't think he's going to, but I want to continue carrying on this idea, right, that seems to be indicated with what we know from the text, that he told his disciples he was going to rise, you know, rebuild the temple in three days, you know, talking about his own body, resurrection, then he has his um, passion and resurrection kind of narratives in the Gospels. Um, if I was going to say, okay, he's dead, and but we need to make sure he's gone, right, you know, if I was a government and I knew some of this stuff, I'd be like, well, we should put people on this tomb to make sure that the disciples don't steal, you know, the body Absolutely. and try to you know, gain control. So I just think the plausibility of I mean, I think there's other reasons why the disciples couldn't have stolen the body. But I think that's one element to it of like, I think they were aware just that this was not a small case. This was a big case They, you know, that was going on in that city at the time. You know, they were worried about rebellions and all other sorts of stuff. And so Pontius Pilate, you know, the Romans, they put guards on there to make sure that the Jews don't steal the body, that, you know, the disciples don't steal the body. Um, and so I, I just don't think it's a plausible in some sense to say, okay, somebody walked, just walked in and took the body. Well, you're exactly right. And I think even from the beginning of the week, you know, and uh, we just celebrated Palm Sunday when we got Jesus' triumphal entry into the city and they're laying down 
palm branches and saying, Hosanna, they're receiving him as this Messiah. Uh, you know, the Romans and even the, the Sanhedrin would not be oblivious to all that was going on, and they would be suspicious of this. But even mo- beyond moving beyond that, then you have the disciples themselves mm-hmm. who we can establish the credibility of Jesus being a person. We can also establish firmly that, that the disciples were people, and they weren't just people, but they were all people who suffered martyrs' deaths. And that's really important because, you know what, I may tell a lie, and, and Lord knows I have in the past. Uh, not something I try to do, <laughs> not anymore at least. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing. If I know something's a lie, I'm not going to suffer martyrdom for it. Uh, because the way that the Roman law worked, if, if you recanted, they would just let you go. This actually creates a lot of issues later on in the church, uh, within the church, about who could be trusted and who sure. couldn't, who would recant their faith. And if they did, could they be received back in? Um, but these disciples, you know, they could have recanted. They could have just walked away. Instead, they continued to have this prolific ministry and, uh, you know, Pentecost and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they all, all except for John, uh, were ultimately uh, martyred for their faith. And, and, then, and that's not to say that John didn't suffer because I think. No, he at, certainly did. Yeah, I think at one point they. They boiled him in boiled, oil. Yeah, boiled him in oil. So, <laughs> so uh, they tried. Uh, and uh, and I think that's an important point because, you know, people, you know, are may die believing something to be true, but they won't die for something that they know not to be true. Absolutely. And uh, These are firsthand witnesses. Yeah, and these are yeah, firsthand witnesses. I want to go to a couple of other conspiracy theories that are out there. You know, one of them is that the disciples faked the resurrection. They stole the body. Again, I don't think it's plausible because of the soldiers being posted and because of what you just said, kind of with their own testimony and their life afterwards. Um, what about the Jews stealing the body? Um, they could say, well, you know, they could have taken the body. Well, what would you, how would you respond to something like that? Uh, if, if they were trying to discredit Jesus by stealing the body, this is the enemy of Jesus, presumably the people who did not receive him and thought he was a, a false messiah, then it, it seems far-fetched that they would say the body is gone, and then first of all that these people who literally write everything down, uh, we have sure. massive amounts of texts uh, from the Jewish rabbis of various sorts, uh, for the first several centuries, and uh, that they would not write this down, they would not record it, and that they would make the Christian case more plausible by having a missing body. That just, it doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, it's the, not consistent. The best way for them to discredit Christianity would be to produce the body. The body. And the text tells us they accuse others of, of stealing the body. Yeah, in that's, the what's, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah they, they accuse, you know, people of stealing the body. So we know it's not them. Um, let's go to a couple other. How about the he's not dead? The swoon theory. Um, yeah, that he's not dead. He's just sleeping. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of that? Okay. Um, so and, and tell us what that is first. You know, kind of describe it. And then yeah. The, so the swoon theory is basically like uh, if you've ever seen uh, Princess Bride, he's only mostly dead. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you have someone who is just clinging to a little bit of life, and they are unconscious. This has happened before. It's even happened that people have woken up in morgues before. So from a surface level, this is not totally far fetched. Sure. Uh, but here's what I would say: uh, you have a guy who the scripture tells us is beaten beyond recognition as a man. 
literally, he, he's beaten to the extent that he can't even carry his own cross, which was a custom, which, by the way, another thing, we, we make a cross. You know, we, we're accustomed to the sight of a cross, but they would have the upright post already fixed, and then they would have, uh, you would just carry the crossbar, and they would use poles to lift you up and hang that mm. crossbar up there. They're not pulling the whole thing up like you see in the movies. Uh, at least that's what the archaeology tends to suggest. Uh, but anyways, he's unable, and he, he needs someone else to carry his cross uh, at one part of the, the way of pain, the Via Della Rosa. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says that uh, the Scripture tells us that, that when he gets up there, uh, that he suffers this, this brutal uh, crucifixion. And uh, this was a, a rough way to die. You know, you're nailed to a cross, and you're down in a prone position, and the way that your body is kind of uh, hanging up there, it you're pushing up on a post with your feet, and the longer you push, the more tired your, your, your leg muscles and other muscles in your body begin to get. You're not able to lift yourself up in the way that you are typically need to be for your lungs to function properly. And so you actually, typically on a cross, you don't die from blood loss or, or anything like that. You die from asphyxiation. You're no longer able to breathe when you fall into a prone position and unable to lift any longer. And so uh, even from modern times in crucifixions, we know that the heels of people who've been crucified are bruised. And this is really interesting when you get into the Genesis account. Mm-hmm. And uh, or he will bruise your head and, and you will bruise his heel with the serpent. Uh, because the bruised heel seems to be this part of the Proto-Evangelion, wow. the first gospel, you know, that uh, even in the beginning, the plan of God was always that Jesus would come and he would suffer and die for our sins. Uh, so, and so he's hanging up there on the cross, and then you have this part in the text where this Roman soldier uh, takes the lance, uh, his name is supposedly Longinus, that we, you know, and they call it the Longinus Lance, and, and there's like three of them floating around in the Catholic Church that all claim to be the actual lance. You know, it was supposedly uh, brought back by Helena, the mother of Constantine, mm. and all this kind of stuff. But anyways, uh, nevertheless, the text tells us that this Roman soldier, and these guys were professionals in the art of death. This was their business. Uh, this guy has... Uh, to stab Jesus through the side with this lance and ensure that he's dead. And uh, if he were not dead, uh, you know, again, you have people who know how to make people dead and how to check and see if people are dead. And and even in the text, we can see that this is happening. You know, from the text, it tells us that, you know, water and blood pour out. And I'm sure there's, you know, symbolic understanding there that we can reference. But medically, you know, I've read... Separation of the blood. Yeah, I've read, you know, physicians talking about this, saying that is a clear sign that, you know, he's past the point of no return. Like, Mm -hmm. even if you took him off right then and gave him modern technology... He, you know, he wouldn't make it. I mean, it's it's right. it's clear there. Well, let's just say you know it's okay. He he goes through all this. He faints, and then he goes into a tomb. Okay, um, my biggest concern with that is okay. Let's say this all that happens. He goes into a tomb. Well, he's going into the ground where you know it's probably not the most clean, the most sanitary. Even though they are wrapping him up and putting oils like. You know, if he's gone three days later and he gives we, you know, we have to talk about the the visions of Jesus or his appearing to people. Even three days later, if this were to happen, he's not going to be able to just get up. But even you're right. Even in his weakened state, how does he move the stone? 
you know, and move it from the inside at yeah. that, you know, uh, it just doesn't fit. Yeah. It doesn't fit. Yeah, it doesn't fit. So we, we've said, okay, the disciples can't really take it. Jews can't really take it. I don't know why the Romans would take it. Um, you know, I know, no that, reason. I know there are theories out there, but they're really no, I mean, they're trying to stop a rebellion. Um, so if they saw uh, the way I think of it is like, they're trying to stop it. They're trying to, you know, they're appeasing the Jewish people, the Jewish Pharisees, right? You know, they could produce a body to do that, right? As Christianity grows, they could also produce a body to say, oh, we've got it here, you know, a hundred years later. Why are you guys doing this? We have the body here, you know, at any point. You know, if this was the case, you know, if the Romans had taken it, you know, there would have been points for them to produce it yeah. to squash rebellion, you know, and they don't do that. Yeah. And so it just not, it's not viable for that. And so the question becomes, well, if he's dead, it gets put in there. What is the most plausible explanation for this to happen? We can't really address this without addressing the visions. So let's talk about some of the objections to the visions of Jesus. I think the, one of the uh, biggest ones is hallucinations. Well, everyone who saw Jesus afterwards was just hallucinating him, yeah. right? Uh, what would be some of the objections or the answers to that? Someone says, well, they were just all hallucinating or they were all imagining it. Well, you, you, first of all, you've got multiple parties, right? Uh, so not only do you have to have multiple people, mass hallucination, which as we talked about just before the show, is not really, you know, this is not something that's at least been recorded frequently. Sure. Um, but you have to have it happening over and over again to different people. And uh, it seems very implausible, even just from that regard, you know. that. Sure, yeah, it's different people, it's different timing, it's in different settings and different places. We can't really find a whole lot of evidence for mass hallucinations on this scale. They were all at different places and all different times, and it happened over a season. So it wasn't just like one day, it was multiple days. Yes. This is going on. And so that makes it highly implausible. Again, uh, I'm just going to hit on two more. Uh, we talked about the legendary tale, the Roman legendary. There's really not a whole lot for them. Reason why they would not produce the body. Well, and not just that, but if you have someone who is a potential usurper and Jesus is the king of the Jews, uh, Rome has no interest in uh, trying to let such a thing uh, persist, you know, they would be wanting to squash anything and everything in that regard as far as they could. Uh, so even if they had stolen the body, they would have stolen the body and they would have said so, first of all, because they're Rome, mm -hmm. and uh, they can, and they're not worried about what anybody thinks. Um, but yeah, it's that one doesn't work. So Sure. So the last option for this resurrection, right, if it can't be all these objections, is what's the most plausible kind of explanation for this. And I would argue as, um, you know, obviously as a follower of Christ, right, um, I believe in the supernatural. So I think that things can happen um, that are miracles that are outside of just natural means. Um, and so I recognize that some people would say, well, I only believe in naturalistic means. And so um, it's not plausible, you know, for Jesus to rise from the dead. I understand that. I think we have a lot of evidence in our culture and just experiences in life uh, from multiple areas to say there's something beyond the natural that is supernatural. So if I, if I start from that starting point, so I recognize that, I would have to say then the, one of the most plausible answers for the missing body is a resurrection, that there is a God who does miracles and God raised his son 
from the dead. Would you agree with that? Would you push back on that? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Paul says clearly, you know, if if Jesus did not raise, then our faith is in vain. But, you know, I, I want to kind of push back on the whole idea even more of, of what is natural and what is miracle. I think we mm-hmm. sling those terms around. Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, what's natural is only because we understand it. If you take a combustion engine back a thousand years ago, they would say that's totally unnatural. You know, it's not a living thing. How is it moving? You know, and, uh, you know, then we say if we can't, dis- you know, explain it, then we call it a miracle. But just because we can or can't explain something doesn't mean that it can or can't happen. Some things are one-off phenomenons, and they've been observed throughout history. It's not something that we can repeat and observe using the scientific method. But all the same, it happens. We know things exist sure. outside of our understanding. What is a black hole? We don't know. But, you know, it's there, uh, you know, so... What do you do with it? And, and the same way with the resurrection. Uh, we don't understand it, uh, but that doesn't preclude it from happening. It just means we don't understand it. You know, sure. It's not something that we've been able to um, maybe naturalize in our mind, uh, to borrow the term. Very but. cool. Well, hey, this has been an awesome conversation. I know I've learned uh, quite a bit, and it was just good to go back and forth. If uh, someone's listening from our church that wants to stay up to date with you guys um, as you guys head to Israel, what's the best way for them to kind of stay up to date? Well, we're going to be speaking at Fairview in just a couple of weeks, is my understanding. At the end of the service, we'll have a table set up to where they can stop and leave their email address, and that will get them on our newsletter, and we'll be able to keep them up to date with all the latest. Perfect. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for being here today, and uh, we are certainly praying for you as you guys head over to Israel very, very soon. I appreciate it, brother. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I want to remind you to be praying for Elijah and his family. And uh, yeah, if you have any recommendations or topics that you would like for us to discuss here on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me at jspolino at myfairview.org. And don't forget, folks, don't forget that uh, we have exclusive t-shirts that we are selling for our family ministry project. And that goes until this Thursday. So you're going to want to make sure that you get that. This is Thursday. Thursday of Easter week. And so the 14th of April is the last day to get those. All the details are online and on our socials. So with that, we love you guys. And until next time, see y'all later.